And now, Unplugged, a CCBO podcast with David Mitchell. At CCBO's 2018 Connections Conference in Calgary, I had the great pleasure to speak with the Right Honourable Kim Campbell, thinking differently about leadership. Here's an excerpt of our conversation at the conference. Thinking differently about leadership. I can't think of a better person to have a conversation with than our former Prime Minister, Kim Campbell, who's the living embodiment of leadership at all levels of government, globally. It's a pleasure to have you here with us today, Kim. Thank you, David. It's great to see you. I'm, I've known David for over 30 years, and it's any excuse to spend time with him is really a delight. Thank you. We were very young. (laughs) Indeed. He was anyway. Thinking differently about leadership in an age of Trump. Is it possible that we are currently living through a reevaluation of the nature of leadership itself with anti-expertise, populism, a a distrust of experts by some, anti-intellectualism, is the very way we look at leadership changing? Well, you know, um, leadership is a term we throw around a lot. And uh, I remember once reading about uh, a man whose daughter was applying to a university. And of course, they always say, you know, know, are you a leader? Or is your daughter a leader? And he wrote, well, I'm not sure if she's a leader, but she's a very good follower. Because we sort of think everybody's got to be a leader. Um, when I was at the Kennedy School, I, I was at, at the, the Center for Public Leadership at the John F. Kennedy School of Government when it was first created. And one of the professors there, a man called Marty Linsky, had the view that, in fact, there's very little leadership in the world and that most people don't want leaders um, actually to lead. And he would say to people, and we would do these programs with people from both sides of the divide in Northern Ireland, and he would say to people, think of yourself as a dot with a circle around it. And that circle is the area of activity you can enter into without alienating your supporters. But if you really want to move things, if leadership involves taking people from one place to another, it's very difficult. How far can you go? How do you make those circles overlap? And I think what we are seeing is a lot of dots with circles and people playing to the people in those circles and not really leading to move elsewhere. And I think with somebody like Donald Trump, Donald Trump speaks for a group of people, who, many of whom have rejected the social changes that have taken place in modern society, and you know, seeks to, to cultivate that relationship as a way of achieving what he wants to achieve by leadership, which I think is probably not to make him poor. Um, and I think that, that there, what Marty Linsky has spoken about is really being shown. Do we want real leaders, or do we want people who reconfirm our own fears, our own prejudices, our own uh, dislike of, of, of change? And one of the ways I think that happens is if people are persuaded that 
they have a reason to be afraid. I mean, one of the frightening things about Donald Trump is that he lies about everything. He lies about unemployment. He lies about uh, what immigrants are doing in American society. All of the, you know, crime is at a at a 40-year low, but he makes people afraid. Um, you know, the unemployment is much higher, he says, than, than the statistics. When the statistics say that actually the economy is doing well, well, those are, those are lying. And that, that fear puts people in a frame of mind where they want somebody who will sort of crush the opposition but reconfirm their own views. So I think what we're seeing is something that we have seen before. I don't think it's new. I think there are factors like social media, etc., which make it, um, you know, more easier to... to communicate those messages. But I think a lot of it is that we, you know, some crises produce leaders, um, but sometimes crises can produce demagogues as well. And I think we're living in a time where technology makes it easier for the demagogues to, to get power. Um, and, and I mean, you ask yourself, is Donald Trump leading or is he simply echoing the, the views of a group of people who've decided to support him into the highest office. Yeah, very good question. Excellent point. Now, I want to mention for the benefit of um, those who may not be aware, uh, that uh, Kim is the founding principal of the Peter Lougheed College of Leadership at the University of Alberta. And um, named after, by any uh, measurement, a great leader, Peter Lougheed, one of the truly great political leaders in that sense in the history not only of Alberta but in Canada. Mm -hmm. um, in your role as the principal of a leadership college, um, I've been wondering about this. Can leadership be taught? That's a great question and a lot of people ask that. Um, leadership is taught. No leader is a blank slate. We're all the product of our formal and informal learning. And Dr. Reg Crochet, thank you. That was a, a, such a brilliant presentation. I just loved it. But you were also describing the process by which, in First Nations, people learn the skill of leadership. And one of our great friends at the college is Chief Wilton Littlechild. Willie Littlechild was in Parliament with me. And there's a wonderful speech that he gave at a conference on Vancouver Island where he talked about some of his own growth and decisions he's made and the relationship with the elders. That in First Nations cultures, there is a, a deliberate transmission of the values, the history, the worldview that's very important to try and prepare and strengthen young people to be able to play their role in the community. But what we learn, in a, we, you know, we learn from the landscape in which we grow up. I'm a very different person from the person I was when I was in my 20s, I think, uh, or in my teens, I, I think my values are, are similar in the sense that things, similar things are important to me. You know, I care about the advancement of women, I care about democracy. But my view of the world is very different because I've had a chance to learn and grow. Uh, our orientation at the college this last year was on learning and unlearning. So. When you say, can leadership be taught? It is taught. Every person who takes on a leadership role has ideas, things they believe to be true. Uh, now, can you teach skills of communication? Can you help people to be more uh, adept at, at the, the, the activities that leaders get, get into? Can they overcome their fear of speaking to, to an audience? Can they be more uh, effective doing that? Those are all things, yes, that, that one can learn. But the, 
the core question of le teaching leadership, teaching the capacity to reach people, teaching the capacity to exercise authority uh, or to exercise the power of influence in a way that is effective, that is influenced by so many of the things that we do. And the real question is not can leadership be taught, but are the people who take leadership roles in our society, are the lessons that they've learned the right ones? Because, as I say, I've had to unlearn a lot of things mm. um, in, in, in my course of human development, as well as to learn things. And at the college, we approach the idea that we are training leaders uh, for Edmonton, where we are, Alberta, Canada, the world. And so we have to you know, open our, our, our horizons. One of the things that we have, incidentally, is a strong commitment to indigenous content in our program. But when I was a young woman, we didn't have indigenous content. This was, there was that wall that you talk about. Uh, and now, actually, happily as a result of many of the legal gains that First Nations communities have made, we have to pay attention. You know, if you can't communicate with First Nations people, if you don't understand their role and the basis of their rights, you cannot lead in the business community or in the political community. So for people who grow up without that understanding, that's a lesson that you have to learn. We have to learn how to think about surviving in a pluralistic society, you know, where we have two official languages. We have many, very different kinds of cultures in the country. So there are lessons that we need to learn and we need to be constantly saying, what, what we say at the college is, what do leaders need to know? And we try to find those, those skills and uh, prepare our students. Mm. Thank you for uh, taking on the role of founding principal of the college. And uh, thank you for your answer that leadership can be taught. This will be heartening to the educators among us today. Um, and it also seems evident that many leaders at uh, many different levels of organizations learn on the job as well. That it's not only a formal education, but the informal education of learning on the job is not only important, but it's sometimes daunting, I think, because it's visible. Yeah, when we're watching people learn on the job. Uh, do you have any reflections on that? Well, you know, I think today, uh, partly because of media, our environment is less forgiving for people who make mistakes and want to learn. And I always say the only failure is the one that you don't learn from. But if, you know, people talk about the 24-hour news cycle and social media, the ability for people to step in it and then say, you know, I was wrong. W.A.C. Bennett, who uh, David wrote a wonderful biography uh, about him, was the premier of British Columbia, who had a wonderful expression when, when his government tried something and it didn't seem to work. He'd say, well, we'll take a second look. That, you, that's a grown-up approach to things, not sort of, well, you know, we're going to go down with the ship. <laughs> we're not going to change our mind. But I think we need to create a culture where we allow our leaders to learn on the job, where we understand that people will make mistakes and they'll learn from them, and, and move on from that. And I think, uh, you know, one of the interesting things about, uh, I've done a lot of reading since I had political retirement thrust upon me by the Canadian electorate, um, a, a lot of reading in the uh, social sciences of, you know, gender barriers and these things. And one of the things we share with our students is a lot of this working social and cognitive psychology. And one of the things we know is that when you're a non-prototypical leader, <laughs> um, you, you don't get a second chance. 
that if people think you don't really belong, but they're kind of, okay, they'll let you do this if you're the first woman or a person of color or just somebody who's not from the normal group of recruits for a position that people think belong there, um, that very often you don't get a second chance because if you fail or you make a mistake or you put your foot in it, uh, people allow that to validate their deeper sense that you don't really belong there. So part of being... Um, you know, if we want to open the, the field of people who get a chance to participate, and we'll come to the question of why, why that's important in a minute, I guess, but we have to allow people to learn on the job. One of the greatest schools of leadership is simply the, the ability to be able to work with somebody who's good at it. And very often that's a more mature person who has you know, gained the wisdom of trial and error, etc. And one of the things that's interesting about Peter Lougheed is that he actually was a great teacher of leadership. Because every, every time I talk to somebody who was in his caucus or in his cabinet, they talk about the things that he said. So he didn't just do things, he explained why he was doing them. He would say things like, you know, when, when a caucus colleague would say, oh, we can't do this because our supporters would never you know, allow it. You know, the people in that circle, they wouldn't like it. And he'd say, first we decide the right thing to do, then we figure out the politics of how to do it. Very powerful lesson. He also was very uh, determined not to let little cabals grow up in his caucus. So if he saw people sort of gathering and meeting, he'd kind of come over and get into the conversation because he knew that that was very destructive. The caucus, you're in there together, and the caucus of a governing party is a very interesting body. That's the instrument of governance in a parliamentary system. And as every minister who knows who's alienated their caucus, you know, caucus is mad at you and they're going to the prime minister and saying, you gotta get rid of that minister. You know, you can't do what you need to, you need to work with this group of people. And Peter Lougheed understood the importance of keeping that sense of shared mission, even among people who don't necessarily uh, agree with one another. Another thing that he did, which was quite interesting, wherever he went, you know, he'd go to, into a town, and he'd just find some, you know, ordinary person who was around, maybe somebody who came, came over to shake his hand, and he'd say, you know, you just come and walk with me. And he'd say, you know, I'm dealing with this and that issue, you know, you know, uh, you know what do you think about that? Now, you might think that that was pandering, but, you know, he understood that power creates a bubble, and he wanted to know what the person on the street was thinking about this issue. What was their level of knowledge? You know, was the government succeeding in informing people so they could understand what they were doing? What were their views? Maybe some people had a reaction that he hadn't even thought about. And the people who worked with him, I was hearing a story about a woman who was one of the pilots who flew him when he went to different places in the country. And you remember that Peter Lougheed was premier during the period of the, the, the uh, patriation of the Constitution and all that that entailed in terms of you know, many different kinds of debates and conflicts. But he would take his pilot, the crew on the plane, with him to meetings. And this woman said, I got to meet René Levesque. I mean, she, you know, because he felt, you know, why not? Why not give this person a chance to see what's going on, to, to learn something? You know, they're just taking up a chair, why not? So you, you think about him and you think that, that he had a very conscious approach to leadership that was, but, but it's also true that at the end, towards the end of his life, he said one of the things that he wished that he had done more about was indigenous people. That he felt that that was something that he had, uh, he had not succeeded in. And maybe, uh, maybe Dr. Crochet was right that maybe also sometimes timing uh, influences the, the ability and the receptivity of people to address certain issues. But he wasn't unwilling to criticize himself 
Uh, and I think that's important in leadership too. So I give me long answers yeah. to short questions. Those sorry. are fascinating answers that insights that only you can provide. Are there gender differences in approaches and the practice of leadership? Well, David, there are gender differences because there are differences in what either uh, sex is able to get away with. The first uh, exposure I had to somebody thinking kind of analytically and, act, and in a scholarly way about leadership was when I, in 1996, I went to be a Regents lecturer at the University of California at Irvine. And a woman there, a business school professor, Judy Roster, had published a book, America's Competitive Secret, Women Managers. And she'd interviewed top uh, you know, leaders in, in corporations and found that men tended to prefer a hierarchical kind of command and control approach to leadership. And women tended to prefer what she called an interactive or a more egalitarian style of leadership. And she said that when men were trained in the interactive style of leadership, they got great credit for it because it's often very appropriate in the flatter organizations we have where there's less hierarchy and say in a technical field, sometimes it's the newest person who comes in with you know, piercings and odd habits who is in fact the most important person because they've got the most up-to-date and new, and new skills. But, um, but that women were often not tolerated in being command and control. So women learn that there are social limitations on them. And I remember when I became prime minister, people in the office started calling me boss because Brian Mulroney liked to be called boss. But every woman in this room knows that little girls know that being called bossy uh, is not a reflection of respect of their strong, agentic personalities and their ability to mobilize their friends. It's an insult. So women, I think, do develop different styles as a result of the, the social pressures to conform. And it is a catch-22 for women. You know, in the summer of 1993, I had, uh, Gallup said that I had the highest approval rating for a prime minister in 30 years. And that was when I was governing, you know, and I'd done the G7 summit and I was doing things when I was sworn as prime minister, I redraft created the ministries of government and a lot of those things I did were great. Now, incidentally, I'm not saying this would have made a difference in the election because, in fact, the coalition that had elected the Conservatives in 84 and 88 had really come apart. Um, you know, Lucien Bouchard had defected with our Quebec vote and we had nothing to fend off the Reform Party with uh, as we'd had in 1988. So I'm not saying this is just the, 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 the simple thing. But when I got into election mode, that's a different style. And women campaigning and having to be forceful and having to differentiate their party from another party, that's a different set of personal qualities. And for women, it's often hard to know how to balance the need to show that you know what you're doing, that you can be assertive, uh, while at the same time not offending people's concept of what a woman should be. And Margaret Thatcher was interesting because, of course, people sort of joke, that the thing that Margaret Thatcher had going for her was that all of these, you know, you know, particularly you know, upper-class British men who had been raised by their nannies who spanked their bottoms, that they, uh, that they, that Margaret Thatcher's kind of very assertive and domineering uh, personality in her party uh, was quite congenial to men who sort of saw her as nanny. But um, it's, you know, cultures cultures vary. But I think the short answer to your question is yes. And what I think is important is to begin to or to try to stretch the sense of uh, what's acceptable behavior in the same way. You know, men are many things. You know, we think of a man, you know, oh, you know strong. <laughs> but 
the men that I know in my life. You know, I admire the strength of character, I admire their ability to be forceful when necessary, but I also admire the fact that they're kind and nurturing and thoughtful and, you know, intelligent. I mean, you know, you want to be many things. And sometimes for women, the range of what behaviors they are able to exhibit is a bit constrained because if they are forceful, you know, he's forceful, she's a bitch, this kind of dichotomy. Um, I think it still exists. Uh, the only way to change it is to sort of reprogram people's expectations. But I think the, the, the short answer to your question is <laughs> yes, there is a difference. <laughs> Very good. Thank you for that. Now here's another curiosity I have. Does leadership differ? Effective leadership, is it different depending on the sector? In the business world, in government, in the nonprofit sector, are different leadership qualities necessary to be effective? Well, I think it's less a difference between sectors than it is the context or the challenge that is being faced at any given time. So you can have a crisis in a political environment. And in crisis, people often look for a leader to be stronger, more forceful. And I guess that's a natural thing. You know, we gather around, we, we, we cling together, and we want sort of a clear idea where we're going. But you can have a crisis in a company. You can have a crisis in a nonprofit organization. And you can have an, a crisis in political leadership. There's a very interesting book by a man called Archie Brown called The, um, what's it called? the, the Myth of the Strong Leader. And he talks about the fact that many people feel, you know, the leader should be, you know, this, you know, strong person who's going out and crush the opposition. But that actually, if you look at uh, actual leaders and what they're able to accomplish, the most effective leaders are those who work collaboratively and who understand how to bring people in and to hear many voices. It doesn't mean that the leader doesn't have a strong sense of moving things forward, of being the person who helps to set the pace, etc but that you know, the one-man band, sort of the, the, the great person leader, um, and we're seeing this return again in some of the you know, returns to authoritarianism in Europe, as a matter of fact, not to mention <clears throat> south of our border, folks. Um, but those are not effective styles of leadership. I mean, it's interesting if you watch Donald Trump. It's a train wreck. Uh, you know, and there's the, the revolving door of people who think they're going to come in, you know, well, I'll be able to persuade them. But what has been accomplished? You know, really very, uh, nothing, even in terms of what I felt was, it was an agenda that <laughs> I didn't find very congenial myself. So I think, um, you know, I, I think that leadership, that there are many different styles uh, of leadership and many different approaches, but that often it's not just a different, it, it, it's not so much a difference between sectors as between what is the task at hand at any given time. Are we going through a transformation? Uh, are we, you know, embattled by competition? Um, you know, or do we have, you know, challenges to the cohesion of our organization? And that could be really in any sector. Okay, very good. How do we then measure or evaluate effective leadership? Um, you've talked about the approaches that should be similar in all sectors. How do we know when someone's been a good leader? Well, it's interesting because I would say perhaps in the private sector, uh, the bottom line uh, profitability has often been uh, seen as a measure. Although you could argue also that the sustainability of the organization is a very good measure. It's not unrelated to the bottom line, but has the organization been able to 
respond to challenges, and we know, you know this term, um, uh, disruptive innovation, uh, which is kind of the, you know, the, the constant now as new technologies arise and organizations and companies have to, have to respond to them. I think in politics, you know, we, we have our measures, you know, did you win an election? But you know, it's interesting for me because um, having had a spectacular <laughs> electoral loss in 1993, um, it was quite devastating for me. I loved being a politician. I think of all the things I did in my life, it's the thing I did best. You know, my sister and I joke that we're a bit ADD, and the, um, that's attention deficit disorder. Uh, but the thing about politics is there's such variety in it. You know, you think seriously about issues, and you have to go and meet with people, and you consult with people, you have to work strategically with your caucus. You have to there's such a variety of things that you need to do that it's really, really very enjoyable. And so, but so when I lost in 93, you know, I was very sad. It, you know, I did not fall apart. I did not have a nervous breakdown, but I was very, very disappointed. And I think it's very important to be able to acknowledge when you have these setbacks and when, when you feel hurt and dismayed. But it's interesting because in the, in the period since then, I've done a lot of things internationally. And recently I was in Toronto and the head of the School of Public Policy at the U of T was going on about how he felt I'd had the most significant post uh, political career of any of the former prime ministers. He was going on about all things that I've done. I thought, oh, well, you know. So you know, maybe being prime minister was a good career move, you know, for <laughs> a few weeks. Um, but also, when I came back to Alberta, I was very interested in all this controversy, for example, over the judge and his comments about in a, during a sexual assault trial, mm. um, that the sexual assault legislation that I had passed when I was Minister of Justice was still there and was still good. And, and, and Ronna Ambrose said to me, you know, when, when this happened, I said, oh, we have to change the sexual assault law. And people said, no, the law is good. The problem was with the judge. So, mm. you know, I realized that I had left a legacy that there were things that I had done, and it's not that it lasts forever because society changes, and of course you want to revise things. But you can't always know, you know what your impact is going to be. And so you look back and see, and same thing with, with, with Peter Lougheed. There are things that we remember about him. Maybe some of his policies have been superseded because of new needs, but um, other things are lasting. So you can't always know uh, how effective you will be as a leader. Thank you for your observations, your insights. Thank you for your leadership, quite honestly. Um, well, we could talk all day about this, I know that, but I want to hear what's on the minds of people here with us today. This stimulating conversation with Canada's former Prime Minister was followed by questions and comments from a very engaged audience. Kim Campbell helped get the conference off to a terrific start, thinking differently together. I'm David Mitchell, and you've been listening to Unplugged, a CCVO podcast.